Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, September the 12th, 2023, late in the day on the West Coast. Some of you may be watching this actually the next day, September the 13th. It's been another day where tech dominates the headlines and not just bad stories about tech, Google stories of antitrust. Uh, Apple unveiled its new iPhone, got all the headlines. As always, people are lusting after these new iPhones in which they watch all the content. But meanwhile, the content companies seem to be in perpetual crisis. There was the story of the Disney and Charter strike, which almost put all the tele all, all the football off at people's um, phones and televisions. The Hollywood strikes continue of writers. Uh, I had a show today with David Rogers, with the world's leading authority on digital transformation. I asked him for an example of a company which had failed to digitally transform themselves. And he was very explicit. He said CNN, of all companies, you'd think CNN would get digital right, but they haven't. And there are even worse stories of the demise or crisis or moral decay of big media. Uh, in a wonderful book that came out earlier this year, uh, Unscripted by James B. Stewart and Rachel Abrams. It's on the long list of the FT books of the year. And Rachel Abrams, whose day job is at the New York Times, is joining us. Uh, Rachel, congratulations on the book. How Thank much you. of a metaphor? I mean, we'll get into the the sordid, nasty, gross details, Rachel, of, of, of the CBS Paramount unscripted story. But what does it tell us more broadly, in your view? Is it a, a parable about the the moral and economic decay of big media in America? You know, I'm... I think maybe some readers will see it that way. I think that there are some really big lessons generally in how not to run a company here. And, um, you know, one of, one of the, one of the big lessons I think is around corporate governance. Um, and specifically, you know, this was a, our book involves a company and a board that was way too loyal to a CEO, a CEO who was later accused of some really heinous activity um, sexually assaulting women, sexual harassment of women. And what you saw happen in this book was uh, a board that at the, even at the height of the Me Too movement ignored all these warning signs and basically did not do anything that arguably they should have done to, um, to investigate some of this very serious allegations against him. And, and one of the reasons why that's so egregious is uh, for many reasons, besides being, you know, any ethical or moral reasons, is also because these were board members of a publicly held company, and there is a duty to shareholders, not to CEOs. And at one point, you know, the CEO, Les Moonves, who was later ousted, as our book details, um, you know, he's accused of, of sexual misconduct by all of these women in the, in the pages of The New Yorker. And one of his board members says, I don't care if another 30 people, or another 30 women come forward, this, less is our guy. And you just have to think, you know, what does that even mean? You're a board of a public company. Nobody is your guy. The shareholders are your guy. And so I, I do think that to the extent that we want to see any lessons about how companies should not conduct themselves, media or otherwise, um, there, there are definitely some lessons to be to be learned from this. 
Yeah, and media companies of all companies should get it. Uh, I mean, your book is 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 a sordid expose of uh, one. Of the subtitle of the book is "The Epic Battle for a Media Company and the Redstone Family Legacy." You've already mentioned Les Moonves, the CEO of um, CBS, who was involved in a huge scandal, but. Um, He's rivaled, uh, if not be uh, he, he, he outrivaled by Sumner Redstone. Can you give us the 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 brief story of the book and and explain the relationship between Paramount and CBS and all these other companies that I think confuse most people? Sure. So uh, Sumner Redstone was an aging media mogul by the time our book takes place. And this is a guy that started out with some regional theater cha chains in Boston and ends up growing to be a, a billionaire media mogul who owns at the height of his at the height of his fame and fortune. He owns through his company Viacom. Uh, Nickelodeon, MTV, CBS, Paramount. These are you know companies that are if you haven't heard of them, which you probably have. Um, then you've at least heard of the content that they've been churning out. We're talking about Mission Impossible and CBS's 60 Minutes, um, just things that Americans and beyond uh, have watched and consumed for the better part of half a century. And so this, so, and to put it really simply, Sumner Redstone was Les Moonves's boss because Sumner Redstone controlled the whole empire uh, and Les Moonves was the guy that he put in charge at CBS. And Moonves basically turned the company around and after he's, Moonves takes CBS from being sort of a last place among the broadcast networks to being the most consistently watched broadcast network. This was a guy who was dubbed the man with the golden gut. Before he joined CBS, he greenlit uh, ER and Friends, these television shows that just made everybody rich who was associated with them. And um, and so he finally- He's a smart guy. I, sorry to, to butt in here, I no. get into trouble when I interrupt, but- I mean, morally, I think he's certainly not a, a paragon of any kind of virtue. But in business terms, then Sumner, Redner, uh, Sumner Redstone is a smart guy. Uh, Sumner Redstone, if, if I'm, you know, I, I guess I can't really comment on how smart or not he is, but I certainly will say that one of the hallmarks of good leadership is knowing who to install underneath you and letting them do their job. So by that measure, by installing Moonves, I mean, we can argue about other CEOs he might have installed, but Moonves took one of his companies and really turned it around. And after he turns it around uh, and makes CBS this most consistently watched network, uh, Sumner Redstone, who is in failing health at this point, um, his daughter, Sherry, uh, um, is, starts to kind of come in and, and want to make suggestions and might be the heir apparent and is tussling for control with another Sumner Redstone appointee um, who's running Viacom. And, and she's got all these ideas about how to basically, at this point in time, um, the the media is kind of crumbling. We see the internet, we see streaming, nobody's going to the movies anymore, nobody's buying DVDs. And Cherry Redstone has all these ideas about how to save the business and how to improve the business, including that she's going to merge two of her father's companies, Viacom and CBS together. And Viacom is like fail is 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 the is not doing well at this point um, because Viacom owns things like MTV and Nickelodeon and people are, have started cord cutting whereas CBS is doing pretty well and Moonves is thinking you know why am I listening to this woman she, why why would I have to merge these two companies together and be saddled with this company that isn't doing well when I put all this work 
into making CBS so great again. And what happens is our book details is that he basically starts plotting what is essentially a corporate coup to uh, to uh, to basically a lawsuit that will strip her her the of the family of the controlling shareholder of control of the family business. And if you have to stop and think about how audacious this is, just first of all. And so what our book is about is the fight for the control of this company that is both between uh, Les Moonves and Sherry Redstone. It's between Sherry Redstone and her father, who was this abusive uh, megalomaniac. It's about <laughs> Sherry and her father's girlfriends, who also came this close to taking over the Sumner Redstone empire. And I've given you so far a lot of sort of business drama uh, that's quite real and has quite real human emotions. But I think one of the reasons why people really have resonated with this book and much is much similar to how people resonate with the show Succession, which, mm. yes, it's about a family. Succession is about, you would never describe Succession as a show about a media company, right? You would describe Succession as a family drama. It, the media stuff is in the, the control is in the background. And this book is kind of like the real life Succession because this is at its core this is a, a human and family drama this is about a daughter who was constantly seeking the approval of an abusive father that would tell her at times you know that he loved or that he that he wanted her to have a role in his company and other times he would just write the most abusive vitriol in public about her it's and it's about um it's about a ver very flawed decisions made by everybody involved in running this company and how their greed and how their 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 the vices that they're interested in get in the way of of their business decisions um and so anyway this is a long-winded way of saying that i think this is why people have uh, really are interested in this book is because it's a it, these are at the core of it these are human stories um and they have a lot of um twists and turns to them yeah, I was going to joke uh, earlier. You you beat me to the the punch on this one that this would all make a good uh, uh, television show, and of course it it has done. Succession has been hugely successful. The the sexual element here, the the, the sexual politics, particularly in a, in an age of Me Too, um, is it, particularly resonant, isn't it, uh, Rachel? You've focused. Uh, in your job at the New York Times, a lot on this. How, how does that play in? I mean, it seems to be central in many ways. Um, one of the ways that the Me Too movement and the accusations of sexual assault play a really big role in this story is that, uh, as I mentioned before, there were all these, ac in 2018, there were all these accusations being lobbed against Les Moonves. Um, the New Yorker published two different stories with a total of 12 women accusing him of sexual misconduct. And Sherry finds out about this. Sherry Redstone, the daughter of the guy that owns the company he works for, uh, or is the controlling shareholder. And she finds out and she she wants the board to investigate. She wants the board to take this seriously. You know, she understands that a public company at, at the height of the Me Too movement, having accusations, serious accusations of misconduct against the CEO is a serious liability. Again, putting aside any ethical or moral judgments we might have about what one is supposed to do when they learn of such accusations, she knows that this is a bad, this is bad for business, right? And and they have a duty to shareholders. And she presses the board uh, to properly investigate these claims. And what does the board do? The board essentially hires an attorney who does the equivalent of asking Les Moonves, hey, is there anything to worry about? And when he says, no, 
they just sort of take it at face value and that's it. And if, and, and if they had actually looked into these claims, they might've found out a lot more than that. But in a lot of what happened to this company as detailed in our book, and we got a trove of text messages. I've never encountered anything like this in my career and neither has Jim, where we got such an inside look into how this company was responding to a crisis, a Me Too crisis and accusations of misconduct against its CEO in real time. It was, it was so unprecedented to see what they were saying and thinking and texting each other. And they just did not take this stuff seriously. And this book is really a collision. This book, there's, I don't think there's a better illustration out there of the collision between the Me Too movement and the corporate boardroom. Um, so you can really get a picture of how a company responded to these kinds of accusations in real time. And again, that's because we had several confidential sources and one in particular who was giving us text, who was showing us text messages and emails and um, meeting memos. And just, you really just got a, a moment by moment capturing of how these people fail to respond to, to, to a crisis essentially at the most important juncture for the company. Um, and one other thing I'll say about that is that Moonvest knew that all these accusations were bubbling up behind him. And he still allowed a lawsuit to go through that I mentioned earlier, where he was going to basically the point was to strip Sherry of control of the company. The board, CBS was going to sue the, uh, the controlling shareholder and in a move that would, would strip her of, of, of her of her control. And one, it has never been really you know clear to us why on earth he would have gone through with that. Um, knowing that he had all of these accusations, all these skeletons in his in this in his closet that were going to come forward, and that's also a big part of the story. Does anyone come out of this looking good? I mean, you you seem less critical of, of Sherry Redstone. Um, she hasn't had the greatest of presses, but is she uh, the most innocent of all the players here? I, you know, I try to just as, as a journalist, I try to stay away from good or bad uh, because you know. That's not that's I, I feel like that's sort of a dangerous territory to wade into. But I, I do think to your, your question is very good because, you know, people want characters to root for. Right. They in, in all of these stories. And who do we root for? Right. Who's the who's the who's the who comes out on top? And I, if that's the question, I think that Sherry Sherry unquestionably emerges victorious. That's what I would say. And I think the other thing that I feel that I think is very clear is that no matter what you think of her, she is a person who faced enormous sexism. Um, there are anecdotes described in our book, including you know the, one of the board members grabs her chin in this really belittling gesture at a sporting game at a, at a game at a sports game, and when she basically confronts him and says it's not appropriate, he says, "Well, I'm just treating you like I would treat your." you know, treat my daughter. And she points out, I'm not your daughter. I'm, I'm, I'm the controlling share, you know, I, I, I'm the controlling shareholder of this company that you, uh, that you, you're on the board of. And um, I think at every turn, people underestimated her. People called her Sumner in a skirt. Um, she just faced so much sexism and so much uh, belittling and even from her own father. And even if you don't like her as a character, there's you 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 have to at least acknowledge that she was up against forces um, and biases that the men that she was uh, dealing with on a daily basis were not up against. And so, if that is one metric by which to judge whether to root for someone, I guess p people will come away thinking that they want to root for her. 
Yeah, I think um, I think Rachel that people unavoidably and inevitably will think about this in moral terms. You say you're a journalist and you want to avoid making value judgments. But by deciding to write this book, which is a story of immorality on so many different levels, uh, it, it must have been hard to maintain journalistic objectivity. You, you clearly are outraged in some ways by this behavior, even though you've been writing and talking about it for years. What most upset you? What most upset me? Well, I will say there were points in this book where Jim and I, Jim and I worked on this book during the pandemic, a lot of it. Yeah, and, and this and is Jim, James Stewart, another very distinguished writer and journalist. Yes, it, James Stewart is a, is a, is a treasure, is one of the most um, ad, admired business journalists in uh, working today. And I'm, I'm just so grateful to have had the opportunity to work with him on this. And I learned a lot. Um, Jim's written 10 books before this one. This is my first. And there were, there were definitely a lot of moments during, throughout all of this where, you know, especially because it was during the pandemic and we didn't, weren't really talking or seeing a lot of people where we just kept hearing the most outrageous things and thinking, can you believe this? But I think to answer your question, I think that I remember um, uh, learning about I mentioned 12 women came forward in The New Yorker uh, and accused Les Moonves of sexual misconduct. And we learned that basically the board was still willing to forget, like to forgive him. You know, these accusations happened a long time ago and, you know, there seemed to be, I wouldn't be surprised if, these, if the board members didn't really believe these women or thought that the, they just seemed a little gray area or whatever. But the, the, the moment when the board started really sitting up seriously, so sitting up straight and taking some of these, taking these concerns seriously was when uh, uh, Bill Cohen over at Vanity Fair published an article detailing how a doctor named Ann Peters, a uh, diabetes doctor, um, had accused an anonymous executive of sexually assaulting her during an early morning um, uh, doctor's appointment. And Bill Cohan revealed that this anonymous executive was actually Les Moonves. The, this Dr. Peters had written about this um, incident in, I can't remember where, I think it was maybe a medical journal or newsletter, but but Cohan was the one that found out that this woman um, was talking about Moonves. And that was the point where the board started taking this seriously and started thinking, oh, a doctor, you know, a doctor's visit at 8 a.m. And maybe, maybe this is really a problem. And I just remember thinking, oh, my God, it wasn't enough for 12 women to come forward with credible accusations of misconduct. Obviously, the New Yorker vetted these women there and they were all on the record and um, or excuse me, not all of them, but most of them were on the record. But I just remember thinking, like, it took a doctor to get like to to get these men to take this seriously that that they couldn't just be women they had to be a doctor um that was the validity you know the person had to be of that kind of education level and that kind of impressiveness and i thought that that was so indicative of the kind of sexism we were talking about we are talking with rachel abrams who is the co-author of unscripted the epic battle for a media empire and the redstone family legacy a a very troubling story. Uh, it's a best-selling book. It came out earlier this year. It's on the long list now for the FT Business Books of the Year. Can take a short break now. I want to remind everyone that this show is brought to you by Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. We're going to watch a short video 
about liberties and then we'll be back with Rachel and talk more broadly about the meaning of this story and if anything's actually changed uh, at Paramount CBS since the book came out. So don't leave us anyone. We'll be back in about 25 seconds. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties, it's not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. You can check out more about Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are talking with Rachel Abrams, a journalist at the New York Times, who's the co-author of Unscripted. Uh, Rachel, the book's been out a while. It got a huge amount of press. Uh, Everyone now, anyone who reads a newspaper or watches television is familiar with the story. Has it changed anything? Do you think that the book has, has been effective in terms of shining a light on this profoundly unsavory behavior and the irresponsibility and moral unaccountability of the board of such a large media company? Um, I, first of all, I'm really grateful for the reception that the book has gotten. Um, It's always nice when you're writing by yourself or reporting by yourself that people besides your mom and dad have like read it and have questions about it. Um, But uh, I would say that... um, I would say that uh, it is, it's, this is an incredible window into one particular company. And um, I think it's a it's big an company un- though. I mean, we're not talking about a small media company. here. No, it's a, it's a very big media company. And it, it really begs the question that if this kind of stuff went on at a place like this, that's supposed to have all the safeguards around it all, it can afford all the lawyers, all the compliance, all the HR, then God only knows what's happening at all these other companies. Um, and uh, you know, I just, I think that this is such a, it's such a crazy story and it just makes you wonder, like, again, if something's happening in a multi-billion dollar, you know, company like this, where else is it, you know, where else is it happening? And I think the Me Too movement has really revealed that it's happened, that, that, that people are making terrible decisions about, um, about how to handle sexual misconduct allegations against valuable people everywhere, um, You've seen it in McDonald's. You've seen it, obviously, the Weinstein Company, which was private. You've seen, so, but in terms of what's changed, you know, the past, ever since the Weinstein story first broke, I think people have asked this question, like, what has the impact been? And I think it's really, there are certain laws that have changed, but I think it's really hard to draw a straight line between a specific piece of reporting and a certain kind of impact. I would, I would like to think, and I would like to say, that I'm really proud to have contributed to a body of work in general that I think has made people change the way they talk about these accusations. Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, the Jeffrey Epstein story, for example, I think that those women who accused Jeffrey Epstein for, I'm not taking credit for this, but I'm just giving an example of just generally the Me Too movement and what it has wrought, th- those women, were telling their stories about Jeffrey Epstein for years and years and years and years. And so many of them had been painted as uh, prostitutes, whores, drug abusers, um, you name it. And 
finally people started realizing, you know, oh my God, I can't believe we've been villainizing women instead of listening to women. And I'm not talking about believing women, just listening and understanding um, and just change, having, having your perspective change about who's to blame and who's at fault. And, um, and there's a reason why he was only taken into custody after the Me Too movement started. And I, what I'm proud of is that I think that we are listening differently to people and that, um, and that people now feel emboldened to come forward with stories that they've kept to themselves for 20 years. I mean, I can't tell you how many women I've talked to who said, I've never told this to anybody. And I, you know, this is the first time I've, I've been feeling like I can share the story because they know that they're not going to get dismissed or ridiculed or, or, or maligned the way that they might have if they'd come out 10 years ago. And so I think I'm, I'm extremely proud that the book is part of coverage that has contributed to people feeling more comfortable to come forward and to people feeling like certain kinds of behavior are going to be less tolerated. You mentioned the, the stuff in the New Yorker too, the New York Times where you work it played an important role in um, the, uh, the, uh, the Epstein story and, as, and the Weinstein story, of course, books and movies about it. Are there problems also within newspapers, do you think? Or are, are newspapers, for the most part, the good guys here? News, magazines, publications? You mean like in terms of Me Too stuff? Or what do you mean? Yeah. Uh, well, I, you know, look, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know of any accusations of misconduct against newspapers, but newspapers are run by people. And I, I just don't want to seem like I think we're exceptional in some way. We are for-profit businesses run by everybody, run by people. Uh, and uh, we are not above the same kind of motivations that motivate people. Let me put it this way. I have never heard of anything against any executives at any major news organizations that I can think of off the top of my head. But would I sit here and be like, no, we're above it, we're different? No, of course not. That would be incredibly arrogant. Um, but I'm really proud to work at a paper that is run by people who are so committed to the public good. And I hope that weeds out bad actors. And I like to think that it has. In historical terms, how do you think this period is going to be remembered in similar, in a similar context, perhaps to Watergate and the role that journalists played in revealing the corruption in in, in politics? Um, that's a really good question. I don't know how to answer that. I don't know how we're going to be remembered. I I hope I hope that we're remembered for what I mentioned to you before. I hope that like I, I hope that. If I have kids, they think that I contributed to um, a different kind of atmosphere that made people, made certain behavior less tolerated. I think it's different. I mean, Watergate was, I, there was such a clear cause and effect, right, in the reporting that was done there. Here, it's not quite so clear. I think it's more about uh, a cultural shift. And those things are so much harder to measure no matter how much we try. And I would like to think that I was just part of part of making certain things unaccept a small played a small part in making certain kinds of behavior unacceptable in a way that we would never think segregation was acceptable, right? And if you knew that like somebody in your if you found out that your parents had, you know, broken a big story about one particular school that led it to desegregate, I mean, you'd feel proud and I'm not sure you'd think that 
that really led to anything specific other than being proud to be part of a cultural shift. And I, that's a really poor analogy. Um, I'm just sort of struggling to articulate how I feel, but, um, it's just nice to, I, I think this is definitely a big moment. Um, and I think that there's a very clear before and after in how society has behaved and how, how people feel about these accusations. And I'm just glad to be part of that. So. So you think there has been a shift, of course, there's a pushback. Some people believe that the so-called, and, and this is not a word I'm necessarily keen on, but the woke movement has gone too far and that everyone is under suspicion. Do you think that's wrong? Um, I, I think that, how would you describe the woke movement? Well, I, as I said, I'm rather, uh, I'm not a big fan of the word and I personally wouldn't use it, but many people do and, and we know how yeah. they use it. Yeah, I... Uh... I think that I think that um, opening the floodgates and allow and uh, and making people feel more comfortable speaking about a topic that has been traditionally really difficult to speak about is just that it's opening the floodgates and you're going to get all kinds of stories and that and some of them you might deem are worth telling and some of them you might deem aren't and who gets to decide that something isn't worth telling i mean isn't worth telling is so incredibly subjective that i understand that there's a lot of anger on behalf of people who feel that it they're being called out unfairly and um and i think it's impossible to define Woke, what the woke movement is. I think it's impossible to say what these are the stories worth telling and these are the stories that aren't. And I also think that change, cultural change often come, cultural change often comes when people feel really, really uncomfortable. So it's hard to distinguish whether people feel uncomfortable because they're being unfairly called out or whether they're being, whether they're uncomfortable because they should be called out. Um, and uh, I just think that this there, when you talk about the woke movement, I mean, there's so many things that have happened in the past few years besides Me Too. You're also talking about George Floyd, um, which I think when people talk about the, you know, the woke movement and the woke agenda and, you know, you can't say anything for fear of being called a racist or a sexist. I think there's a lot of things that have happened that have contributed to that. Um, and uh, I'm sure that there are individual examples of people who have been unfairly maligned. Uh, but I'm also sure that there are a lot of examples of of, of of people that should be called out who wouldn't have been. And I don't really know how you measure the two and decide net net um, whether it's positive or negative. Final question, Rachel. Um, Paramount, CBS, these are, these are huge media companies full of the, the, the cultural jewels of America, everyone from Stephen Colbert and to, to many of the shows that we all love. Did you get much response from some of these cultural jewels, these influential television personalities when the book came out? Do you think there's been much of a change? Because I think that's one of the, the things that makes this, the fact that it's a media company different. Media is also trying to represent reality and for better or worse is also making moral judgments about our society. Uh, so final question, did, did you get much response from within Paramount? Some of the stars are on the television shows. And secondly, do you think there's been a change? Um, you know, my cynical answer is that I think companies have gotten a lot better at managing their PR. 
I don't, I think, and I also think that like some of the things that were put in emails and put in text, we had somebody, somebody told Jim, uh, my co-author that um, every C after our book came out, every CEO would never text again. You know, I do think that people have gotten much more careful uh, about, I don't think people would be caught dead sending some of the messages that we reviewed as part of this treasure trove of documents and emails and things that we got. Um, For example, the, the guy who said, you know, I don't care if 30 more women come forward, less is still our guy. You know, I think people, uh, on the one hand, like there, it, it is not a new phenomenon that people say things in writing that they shouldn't say. And that has been the bedrock of so many stories since, you know, the time that text messaging was invented. And part of me hopes it doesn't stop. I hope people still keep putting things in writing so that we still have plenty more stories to publish. But, um, but I also think that uh, I just don't, I can't imagine people will be this as sloppy as some of the folks that we reported on were, although they probably will be because they've been, people have been sloppy since, as I mentioned, the beginning of texts and emails. But, um, and in terms of have we, uh, have we heard, we've gotten a lot of response to this book from people inside Paramount, um, I, people inside Paramount, people inside um, the networks, people who worked with the Redstones. I had a woman come up to me to say that she worked very closely with Sumner and did I know that he could still play piano even though he had a hand that had been gnarled by a fire when he was much younger. Um, and um, I had people who worked on the private jets reach out to me afterwards. I mean, just people were coming out of the woodwork to say that they their experiences very much mirrored the culture and um, the ferociousness of the, of, of the top players that we detailed in the book. And that was quite gratifying. You know, you never want, you, pu- you publish anything. You never want anybody to come out to you and say, hey, I worked at this company and you just got it totally wrong. Um, so uh, I think it was very gratifying seeing some of the responses in the book, to the book.